you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open up to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to be. If you didn't bring one or don't have one, there should be one in the seat right in front of you. That is our gift to you. You're welcome to take that and uh, keep it as you leave if, if you don't have a Bible to read at home. Spring is the most important season of the year for many. It's a season of hope. Uh, it's a season of, of new possibility and change. And of course, for many in the world, I'm talking about um, the season of Easter being spring. Uh, but for a great deal of other people, it's baseball season. And um, the new hope that they're thinking of is this. My team right now is tied for first place. And, uh, and they are right now until, until the first day of the season when that begins to change. A man approached a little league game one afternoon, and, uh, and he saw this kid that was in the dugout. And he walked up and he asked him the score, and the, and the kid says, well, the score is 18 to 0, we're behind. And the spectator says, wow, I bet you're discouraged. And the kid gives him this weird look back and says, discouraged? Well, we haven't even gotten up to bat yet. <laughs> Children have this kind of naive capacity for hope, don't they? And here's what's a beautiful thing. Here's what we celebrate this morning is this. Jesus doesn't correct that in children. He commends it in children. He commends their naive, childlike faith that they have. The word we're looking at this morning is a word that I would say captures Easter probably more than any, and it's the word hope. Hope is common to everyone because everyone needs it. Think about this. The fact that we all long for and need hope implies some things. It implies brokenness and messiness perhaps laziness, or just plain losing 18 to 0 right now in life. Check out our stories. Check out from comic books to TVs, movies to literature. We long for a Savior. I mean, if we had it all together, and if we were in total control, we wouldn't really connect with those stories of hope, would we? We wouldn't long for a Savior in our stories, and yet we do. Jesus started probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another translation puts it this this way, blessed are those who see their need in their spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christian or not, religious or not, every one of you in this room builds your life on some kind of foundation. Now, I had to actually hide this because children were coming in and they were going, what's that? What is that? What is that? Can I see that? So I had to go hide that away. But think about it. All of you in this room, if we could sit and just have a conversation and you entrusted me with this information, all of us have our hope in some way, shape, or form resting on something. Don't we say it this way? We place our hope somewhere, some kind of tenderly, because they're not positive what their foundation is, and they're like, let me just let go of that carefully in case that's going to crumble, perhaps like the last thing I put my hope in. Hope's an interesting thing. That's what we're really going to kind of dive into this morning. We've taken the last month to celebrate one week. We kind of do things slow around here, I guess. But we took Holy Week, and we just looked at each day of Holy Week, and we took an entire Sunday to just kind of let that day and what went on linger with us. And so we, we looked at some different things. And this morning, it's been a really, really rich season of worship for many of us. This morning is the climax of that. This morning is the Resurrection Sunday. This morning is about the word hope. The resurrection of Jesus is the central theme 
in all of the Bible. You take that away, and everything that we're doing here falls apart. It's the linchpin, so to speak. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ had not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. Now, I've been told my preaching is useless from other people for different reasons, but if the resurrection didn't happen, doesn't it stand a reason that what we're doing here is just a farce? It's just a charade of some sort. Paul says it. All the preaching is useless if Christ hasn't been raised. And your faith is useless. To say it a different way, you might say this. That Christians have put all their eggs in this one basket about an empty tomb. And if that's not there, then, then our faith is useless. Then for most of us, in, as we follow Christ, we would say our purpose in life is useless. Resurrection is the final and best sign that Jesus did showing himself to be God. Now, he did a lot of signs, a lot of miracles that were giant pointers saying, I am who I say I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. But this one trumps them all, the resurrection. Jesus accomplished some very specific things that we'll look at in just a couple of moments. But it's really, really hard to believe. In the resurrection, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You, you look at the, the story of Easter. And many have looked at that and said this. Perhaps you've thought this. That's a great story, but it just sounds too good to be what? True. I just got done telling you that the Bible gives witness to the fact that if it isn't true, then it's not much of a story and not much value to you at all. The biblical witness of this is unflinching. So the, the, the problem with believing it is not that the Bible isn't clear on it. Some who are maybe haven't read the Bible or maybe are taking other people's words and just kind of regurgitating would say something like this, that the Bible actually never really claims this to be true. It's meant as a metaphor. It's meant as a teaching instruction. I'm going to show you just a few verses um, out of the Bible this morning that will reveal that's not the case at all. The Bible is unflinching in its witness that this is a historical, actual event. So the fact that the biblical witness is there uh, isn't really the problem in terms of why it's difficult to believe this. How about historical evidence, those kinds of things? Once again, there is profound, overwhelming evidence about this man, Jesus Christ, who lived in Nazareth, who caused quite a stir. Whether you're a disciple of him, a follower of him, a hater of him, in question about him, uh, is, is, is wide open for discussion, but both theological and secular historians agree that he actually lived, that he actually caused quite a stir. Furthermore, as to the resurrection, uh, there's debate, but as to whether he died at the hands of Roman executioners, complete agreement across the board. As to the fact that there were not only credible witnesses but credible testimony from those credible witnesses that say they saw him alive over a number of days after he supposedly died, once again, is across the board unanimous. So the historical evidence is profound. But it's still hard to believe, right? Here's what's interesting. That's not new. The original followers doubted too. Mark chapter 16 says this. This is a summary of what we're going to look at this morning. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Who's the rest? They went back and told the 11 uh, disciples. Why is there 11, not 12? Judas. 
right? The betrayer isn't there. So who didn't believe them? It's the disciples who walked with Jesus. Luke chapter 24, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I've shared Christ with many people over the years. One person said it this way to me, a person I dearly loved, and I was sharing the gospel, and he said, you know what, that's a neat story. I really respect you, Dave. I I really think I understand what you're saying, but that is on par with the Easter bunny to me. That's an idle tale. I appreciate him being forthright and just and just honest with me. But to him, it was on the same exact level as the Easter bunny, which I thought was a little bit ironic and interesting, seeing as what Easter's all about. But I didn't get into that. One more, John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He had appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You struggle with the resurrection? You wrestling with doubt? You wondering if this is on par with the Easter Bunny? You're in good company. These are the disciples. Thomas gets the title doubter. Doubting Thomas, that's where that came from. And maybe he was the most emphatic of all the followers, but they all seemed like reluctant believers. These are people who walked with the physical Jesus. Now listen to this. I did some research into the Greek and Aramaic. Those are the original languages um, that the Bible's written in and that they spoke at the time. And as you do the study and you kind of figure it out, um, I came to the following conclusion and got some insight. The reason it was hard for the disciples to believe is this. It's because dead people don't rise from the dead. That's what it is. I just saved you all that study time. There it is. Why is it so hard to believe? Been to a lot of funerals. It's part of my job description. I've prayed for this. I said, Jesus, would you ruin my sermon this morning at this funeral? I mean, get this person up and walking around and dancing and praising you. That would be the coolest thing ever. It's never happened yet. They just keep being there in the box, and we just keep talking, right? That's how it goes with dead people. Now, the original disciples put their hope in a Jewish rabbi, but their hope turned to confusion, which degraded into despair, and now they're being told what? Hope in Jesus again. Do you see why they're a little skeptical? I mean, what's their stance here? It's hesitant, right? It's, it's fool me once, shame on, which is it? <laughs> me. No, shame on you. <laughs> Don't be trying to give me the shame. Come on. Just kidding. You get the idea. That's their stance right now, though. We, we already went down this road. We, we already put our hope in this Jewish rabbi and, and essentially look, look where it got us. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've heard some of the things I'm saying. Here's my, here's my guess. If you're sitting in church this morning, um, you probably know much of the Easter story. It's kind, of, it's kind of probably like a potluck of mocking Roman soldiers, long tables set with bread and wine, a bloody Savior, sleepy and then scattering disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, three crosses, a heroic sacrifice, a torn veil, and a miraculous empty tomb on Sunday morning. Now, the order of that and how that all fits together, you're not quite sure of that, but, but you see kind of the pieces. Maybe you've heard the story uh, for, for much of your life. 
Here's what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning. I want to kind of zoom in and just focus on one encounter that the risen Jesus Christ had with some of the people that knew him in those days. It's a lesser part of the Easter story, but as we'll see, it takes place on Easter Sunday. Luke 24, if you're there, follow along with me. I'm going to read, starting in verse 13. says this, that very day, what day? It's the day of the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? (laughs) Jesus joins these two on their way, as they are journeying, as they are traveling. More on that later, but that's a, that's a beautiful thing not to overlook. He sidles up to them and basically says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And I get the picture that they literally stop dead in their tracks. And after they take their jaw up off the ground and lift it up, they basically fire back to him, are you the only one who doesn't know about these things? Don't you love Jesus' reply? What things would those be? You know? I mean, I just love it. You ever wonder why he answers that way? Now, this is pure speculation. The scriptures don't tell us this. But I love, you, you like hunting for Easter eggs as a kid. Man, just study the scriptures. Why, did, why was that little detail left there? Don't blitz past it. As I see him say what things, here's what I get a sense that he's doing. Because he's done this in my life and in the lives of so many friends of mine. It's as if he's inviting them into conversation, isn't he? He's drawing it out of them. In some ways, it's almost like he's he's leading them out into the deeper waters of things. Some of you are teachers in this room. And as a teacher, sometimes a, a student will ask a question, and you have a perfectly good, articulate answer that will get to that person at their age level, and they will get it, but you don't give it to them. It's not because you hate learning hate your job, or hate the kid, it's because you love those things. What you want to do is you want to to draw it out of them. You You want to invite participation. Because what you know is that those lessons stick really, really deep when that goes on. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Let's go on. Verse 19. And they said to him, so Cleopas starts talking back to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So there it is. 
the gospel according to Cleopas. And doesn't he nail it? I mean, he gets the Easter story right. I mean, it just happened this last weekend for him. But he nails off these details. But not only does he get the facts of the story right, he actually gets some of the theological meaning accurate. We thought that this was the Messiah. He was going to redeem us. He was making some truthful theological claims. He summarizes Jesus' power in word and deeds, his death, the hope of redemption, the conquered grave, and even witnesses backing it up. But they had blind eyes and cold hearts and didn't, and didn't really get it yet. They were regurgitating some facts, but didn't get it yet. Two travelers walking along, talking about current events, talking about life, talking about their hopes. Not that different than maybe some of you had this week. Maybe you weren't walking, because we get places pretty quick, but maybe you were sitting at Starbucks. Maybe you were talking over the cubicle. Maybe you were hanging out after work. Maybe you were at a birthday party. Sitting there just talking about the deeper things of life and what they mean, and what the current events of your life are saying. Four words open up the world of need that these two had, and it's found in verse 21. And my translation reads it this way, but we had hoped. Do you see that? That's where the conversation turns. He's laying out the gospel. These are the things that, are, that have happened, stranger, that you don't know what's going on about it. Have you heard this before? But let me tell you about it. And then he says, but we had hoped. And all of a sudden, you get a picture that their, their hopes have been dashed. That's the state that they're in. You ever have your hopes dashed in life? I think the older you are, the more vigorously you shake your head yes to that and say, yeah, yeah, there's been a time or two with that one. One of the things that my job affords me is the opportunity to have lots of conversations with different people in different stages can't tell you the number of parents that I've met with who have teens that are sullen and distant, and they've all but lost hope. can't tell you the number of teens that I've met who are angry and who are depressed, and they've either already thrown in the towel or they're just on the cusp of throwing in all hope. Spouses who wonder where it went wrong, couples and singles, young and old, with unfulfilled longings and dashed hopes. You'll see a lot of conversation, a lot of programs, a lot of talk about helping the homeless. And that's a good thing. We are a church that's passionate about helping the homeless and not just the homeless. But you know what I hear, at least, far less about is people helping the hopeless. People really going after the hopeless. And here's the question I have for you. If you've lost your home, is it easier to find a place again? Or is it easier to find, if you've lost hope, that place of hope again? Man, I've met a lot of people who who were down and out. I've met a lot of homeless people who aren't hopeless. They're there, but they say, look, you will not see me here the next time you guys come and visit. And you know what's cool? I don't. They're gone. They found a home. That's a lot easier to do than the person who's lost hope to get back to that place of finding hope. Next time you hear about a program helping the homeless, think about the hopeless. Keep those in mind as well. Now it's Jesus' turn to speak. And he speaks right into the hopeless heart of these people. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. There's another Easter egg for you to go figure that out. But he urged them, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. We went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. (laughs) Let the party begin. I mean, let the Easter egg hunt go. The kids are loose. Jesus just disappeared. Man, quite a start, isn't it? It's Jesus' turn to speak into this person who's just expressed some serious dashed hope. And what does he say? Foolish ones. You know what Jesus is unflinching about? He's unflinching about the truth. There was a woman at the well, or uh, there was a woman that was caught in adultery at one point. She's brought to Jesus by a bunch of religious snobs who were using her as a bit of a pawn to try to trap Jesus. The encounter of that is powerful because what he does is this. He doesn't excuse, minimize, change the standard. He doesn't flinch at sin. He calls it out what it is, but he pours out a message of grace. And that's where when you read the Gospels, you're astounded at perfect truth and perfect grace dwelling in one person like you've never seen before in your entire life. So he calls it out, oh, foolish ones. Now, I recently flew, uh, and I was reminded of two things. One is this. West Texas is massive and desolate. Don't move there, okay? You're going along at 500 miles per hour. Are you from West Texas? It's massive. Yeah, and you're just flying, looking down there. I just don't see anything but dirt. Um, It's kind of crazy. I looked for the little line, the state line, but I don't know when that happened exactly, but it's big. Um, But here's the second thing that I I was reminded of. It's always a sunny day. I mean, every time you fly, now we fly out of San Francisco a lot around here, and oftentimes it looks a little bit like it does on the screen right here, socked in by fog, right? And in a moment, you just pop through, and it's a glorious, crisp, beautiful, sunny day. The reality is, though, that our circumstances, our perspective on life changes that. Sometimes we're in the, in the deepest storm, and it's raging. We know the sun's there kind of cognitively, but we don't experientially know it. And it's so powerful to be in a rainy place, in a foggy place, and to burst through and to think in your mind, it's always sunny. Above the clouds, it's always a beautiful, clear, crisp, sunny day. You can see really well. In a similar way, current events have a way of clouding our hope. Now, you can be told of the glory of Jesus, or you can see it for yourself. Now, what opens the eyes and turns these kind of cold, cold, uh, you know, stony hearts into flesh? Um, it's, it's the testimony of the Bible. If anyone could have just revealed to these two guys something without using the scriptures, do you think it's Jesus? Probably, right? I mean, he probably doesn't need the Bible to, to do it. And yet, here it is. It's instructive for us. He turns to the Bible to offer testimony about himself. What part of the Bible? All of it. (laughs) 
says he goes back to Moses and the prophets, and he shows how they all point to a Messiah. They all point to these things, Cleo, that you just so eloquently laid out. They're all about me. And their eyes are open because of the testimony of the word of God. And then he goes in, and they have dinner. And I'm not sure if there's a wink here, but I, I envision that as he stands up, I mean, here's the stranger stepping in and kind of taking over the, the master's role. If I go to your house today for dinner, and I all of a sudden start to, to take the position of the host, that would be a little bit odd, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus stands up, and he's going to break the bread and bless it. And I don't know if when he does it, he just kind of does just a little wink. You know, kind of, kind of the two, and they're like, Whoa! You've got to be kidding me. And then he disappears. I love that part too. Oh, to have a resurrected body. It's coming one day. So their hearts are warmed. In fact, they're warmed to boiling. Let's look at this this next part. Uh, Starting in verse 33, it says this. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. You ever get up in the middle of dinner and take off because dinner can wait? Something, something's more important than dinner here. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. No longer defeated, no longer hopeless, their sorrow's been turned to joy. They repented in the most literal sense of the word. You know what the word repent means? It means to turn around. They're leaving Jerusalem. They repent. They turn around. They're like, we got to get back and tell the other disciples about this. They just did what disciples do. They went testifying about the good news of Jesus. You get good news? You tweet it. You run to your family and friends. You're like, i got to tell someone. Come gather with me. I've got to tell you this great news. That's what you do with great news. And so these disciples just go and do what, nat- what, what, what comes naturally to them. Notice the word indeed. There's a, there's a greeting that's given by Christians around the world. And I've said it this morning and I've heard it said in our hallways. He is risen. He is risen Look it up online. This is said in, in I read about, 38 languages last night. I didn't have time to memorize them. I was going to impress you with that. Um, but sure enough, someone would speak Swahili, and you're like, you're pronouncing that a little bit wrong. But it's, it's, it's given by Christians all around the world. And what it says is this. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't some, like, inspiring story to kind of bolster us up. This is real. He's risen, and he's risen indeed. It, in fact, has happened. What does this have to do with you and me? Well, here it is. Jesus isn't a force or a concept or a philosophy. Jesus is a person. And he appeared to his friends. He ate with them. He spoke with them. He showed off his wounds. You channel a force. You discuss a concept. You might subscribe to a philosophy. But what do you do to a person? You relate to a person. The life of hope begins in a relationship with Jesus. It's that simple. What started on that first Easter Sunday continued. If you'd like, you can turn over to Acts chapter 8. If not, you can just listen. But in Acts chapter 8, we see this ministry of Jesus 
continuing on now in his followers. By this point, it's a couple of years later, Jesus has already gone back to his rightful place on the throne in heaven. So Jesus is not here on the earth anymore. Acts is really the story of the disciples as they went on. There's an Ethiopian banker who's on the way. He's on a journey. He's going from one place to another. And this guy, Philip, one of the disciples is there. The Ethiopian banker is just kind of talking about life. We don't know who he was talking with, but he's on a chariot. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. He'd just come from Jerusalem to worship God. At the very least, there's probably an internal dialogue going on. And if you look down in Acts chapter 8, and you catch that Philip joins him on this journey, which sounds an awful lot like Jesus joining two people on the road to Emmaus, verse 29 is powerful because it says this, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. Who told Philip to join the chariot? The Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Elsewhere it's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus told Philip, go join that chariot. It wasn't Philip's idea. Philip's just responding to what Jesus is doing in him. So he goes over and he joins him on the chariot. What goes on there is powerful. The Ethiopian is reading. Philip asks him a basic question. Do you understand what you're reading? What's the, what's the guy's answer? Yeah. How can I unless what? Someone teaches me. You ever have someone bump set and spike the gospel for you? They're like, bump set, and you're in the midair like this. You're like, what do I do? I think I just swing my arm. It's a volleyball term. Look it up. Um, this, is what, this is what one of those is. A lot of times it doesn't happen this way, but he's just going, look, I'm reading from the prophet Isaiah. It's talking about some future Messiah. You know anything about this? Uh, yeah, I do. Let me hop up. And you start to get a click as to why God had you approach this chariot, why God had you open this conversation. And so then it says something really, really powerful. Philip goes up into the chariot with him, and it says this. Now, the passage of Scripture he was reading, verse 32, is this. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom does this speak? And then Philip says this. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, beginning right where the guy was at, it says that, He told him the good news about Jesus. Do you see this parallel? Joins people on the way. Uses the whole of Scripture to point to Jesus and talk about the good news. What happens? What happens is this. The guy stops the chariot. He believes. He repents. He gets baptized on the spot. You know what those are all? Those are all pointers that he now has a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what happened. So the effect of the gospel came to pass. Now, what Jesus did in those days continues in our days. Jesus is still playfully drawing people to himself. I believe he's still coming up to conversations and whispering, what things? And inviting people into more conversation. Inviting people into actually articulating some of the things that they believe. Because as you do it, they really start to take root. The Spirit of Jesus indwells those who believe. The Spirit of Jesus prompts them to join others and proclaim the good news. The Bible remains sufficient for showing us the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Romans 15 says it this way, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There's the word again. Maybe. Maybe hope's been sitting right under your nose for a long time. You think you've already tried that before. Try again. Maybe it's right here in front of us. We depend on the same Holy Spirit, not only to guide our lives, but to open the eyes of those that we meet on the way. Now, all through the scriptures, uh, we see that the, the, the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ is continually misunderstood. It's a constant theme. And that's the same today. I'm not sure what you've heard or what you think about Christians, but let me humbly submit a summary for you today. Some of you, I get it. I should say, you know, Merry Christmas because I won't see you again for a, for a few months, right? There's some people that they, they show up a couple times a year. I get that. That's fine. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but, but if this is your one shot, if this is the one time that, that, that you're going to come to church on a glorious, beautiful Sunday morning and we're only minutes from the beach, let me, let me grab your attention. Let me summarize for you um, what, 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 what Christians are about. First of all, this. We're all in the same boat And by the way, that boat is sinking. Everyone in this room and everyone that you will meet this week has baggage, junk, hang-ups, growth points, if you want to be really polite about it. The Bible's really simple. It just calls it sin. It's called missing the mark. Everyone's in that same boat. Christians live aware of this and ready to walk into the light. A Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance because we continue to have growth points or sin in our life. Not only are we in the same boat, we have the same need. Because of sin, there's lots of variety, but the common, some common roots, we all have the same basic needs. Forgiveness, freedom, resurrection of dead things in our life, strength to carry on, and I could go on and on. If we were to kind of summarize this, what, what I might say is the word um, grace. Grace is not getting what we do deserve and getting what we don't deserve. And a Christian never tires of this reality. We never shut up about it. We never get sick of telling people about the word grace because it's forever altered our life. The reason it really is a good Friday is because every bruise, every drop of blood, every mocking word that Jesus endured that day was an exchange. Him taking the punishment for sin that we deserved and us getting his righteousness that we didn't deserve. That's why it's called Good Friday. Not only do we have the same need, we have the same Savior. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. It's not found in a church or a belief system or a higher power or morality. None of those that I just mentioned take away the shame and guilt of sin. None of those that I mentioned is able to overcome the power of sin. None of those conquer death or is an ever-present help in time of need, but Jesus is. So it's a relationship with Jesus. Peter, a few days after these events, is boldly preaching to the very people that just crucified Jesus, people of position and status that had the power to ruin his life on this earth. Here's what he says in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Finally, it's the same result. 
the result of us trusting in Christ, the result of him dying on the cross and rising again, saved us from some things. It saved us from sin. We are now free to live as a forgiven part of God's family. We no longer need to accept or manage our sin, but are able to victoriously put it to death. Do Christians do this perfectly? Shake your head no with me. No, that's not what it's about. That's just leading back into putting a coat on it, covering it up. A Christian walks into the light. A Christian acknowledges it. We don't meet just one time a week. We meet throughout the middle of the week too. We call each other and talk to each other the way a family does. To call and say, I need help with some things. But we're saved from sin. We now have a choice. We're not enslaved to it. We're also saved from death. Death is the punishment for sin. Because Jesus died for sin, Puritan John Owen was right to call it the death of death. That's what went on on Good Friday. And by trusting Jesus, we are gifted eternal life. Now, this Easter has meaning and power probably like none other for me. Two months ago, I was there holding my dad's hand as his life on this earth ended. And my dad finished well. My dad ended his physical life with the praise of his Savior on his lips, with thankfulness on his lips, surrounded by family, faithful to the end. He breathed his last on a Sunday, and that wasn't lost on me. He breathed his last on the very day that Christians gather around the world and have done so for more than 2,000 years because Jesus rose from the grave on that day. Jesus conquered the enemy of death on that day. So when my dad physically died on that day, and I had this understanding and and a hope and a belief that says, my dad is alive and well. And by the way, that might be the biggest understatement I've said so far this year. I'll make more. But he's alive and well with the resurrected body. He's with his Savior that he loves so much. Man, it takes on new meaning to think about and contemplate the fact that I will join him one day. It's lifting above the clouds in an airliner and looking around saying, wow, it really is true. Not only are we saved from sin and death, but we're saved from God's wrath and hell. What we see on the cross is a preview of what hell is for all eternity. It's God's punishment of sin, and it's repeatedly mentioned in both the Old and New Testament. You want to go on an Easter egg hunt, hunt for that too. It's there all through the Bible. That a loving God would send someone to hell trips up a lot of people sometimes, but we, what we ought to marvel at is this, how God could ever allow sinners like us into his holy presence. It's scandalous. Grace is a scandalous thought. It's irresponsible. It doesn't line up with our way of thinking. And it's gloriously true, and that's why we're so giddy about it. Some of you are thinking right now, okay, now he's getting preachy. Now it's starting to come fast and furious. Let me caution you not to be so quick to dismiss. Think about this. We get physical salvation. We get physical rescue. If uh, if your house is on fire, you call a fireman, right? If someone is breaking into your home and you're equipped with a bat, a toothpick. I don't know. I don't know what you are equipped with. But, you know, people go downstairs with the weirdest things, you know, like a fork. Like, I'm not sure what that's really going to do. I'm going to eat you. you know? um, what you do is you call a policeman. 
right? We understand this. We get this. If you're sick, you call a doctor. If you're drowning, you call for a lifeguard. The urgent need of a Savior that is so evident physically is also present spiritually. But if tomorrow we ran a free seminar in here about how to read the stock market and get wealth, I think we'd pack the place out. I think if we offered a free seminar about how to read the spirit and the signs of spiritual health and how to gain eternal life, meager attendance is my guess. What's physical is so prominent to us. If you were shouting at someone to reach out for a life ring and then they accused you of being preachy, you could live with that, couldn't you? You're just preaching at me. Whatever, just still grab it. That's me today, okay? If you think I'm preachy, good. I'm a preacher. I get it. But it's spiritual rescue that's at stake. But if I'm going to be preachy, I want to be one who preaches grace. Do you know that grace includes sin and hell? I've already mentioned those words this morning. Some of you caught that. Tune back in. Grace includes sin and hell. But many of you who already know that part need to know the rest of it. Need to know the hope part. Need to know the understanding of what grace is about. Two well-known followers from this Easter drama basically run in opposite directions when they're confronted with their sin. Think about Judas. Judas is conniving, and he's scheming, and he's betraying, and he's hypocritical because no one at the Last Supper understands who it is that's going to betray him. So he's a pretty good actor as well. But when he's faced with his sin, do you know what he does? He runs away from Jesus, straight to his death at his own hands. He hangs himself. Contrast Judas with Peter. Bold, overconfident, denying Peter. When he's faced with his sin, what he eventually does, he runs straight to Jesus. The story is actually that he swims to Jesus. Go read that. That's a great part of it. The point is this. All of us are runners. We either run away from God when we're confronted with sin or we run straight into the loving arms of a Savior. Awareness of sin leads to death or life, despair or hope. I hope today is a reminder of you to say your prayers. Maybe like when some of you were kids, you were told to say your prayers. In fact, I would say this, pray as a child does. No formulas, no embarrassment, no cliches. Just tell God what you're actually thinking. Here's a prayer from Anita, who's 11 years old. Dear Jesus, I want to thank you for going up there on the cross for us every Good Friday's. You must be real happy when the weekend is over. Thanks. (laughs) As you pray like a child, don't be limited by adult vocabulary. Kids don't really know that many words, so they rely on tons of other forms of communication. If you come to my house, you will see it filled with hugs and squeals and laughter and screaming and winks and squeezes and hopping, skipping, dancing, and even once in a great while, silence. That's rare. (laughs) You know what all that is? That's all communication. Big words aren't necessary to talk to God. Finally, children aren't afraid to ask for help. Do you notice that? They have no problem doing that. We tend to put that off as long as is humanly possible. We seem allergic to any admission of need, humiliated by weakness. Never would we want to embrace it. We're humiliated by it. 
Kids routinely and freely admit that, that, that they are in over their heads, often just raising their hands uh, and arms instead of even saying words. My kids sometimes do this. They just do this, and they're like, dude, you're on the clock. Get over here. It's been like three seconds. Just pick me up. I need, I need something. That's kids for you. They don't mind admitting need. Ask for help. I'm going to invite the band up right now. We're going to close with a couple of songs, and in the midst of one of the songs, we're going to celebrate, we're going to take communion, which we've been doing every week this month. And as we do that, I would invite you, um, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to do what Jesus said to do with it. Do this in remembrance of me. The body is represented by the little cracker that you'll take. The blood that we're, that we're so familiar with and we sing about and we talk about. What that sacrifice was about is represented by the juice that you'll drink. Perhaps today was nothing more than a reminder. Prodigals simply sometimes lose their way and they put their hope in the wrong basket. It's common. It's happened to many of us in this room. The message for you, if it's a reminder, is quite simple. Come back. Maybe today was a siren, an alarm clock of sorts. Sinners pridefully cruise along life thinking that they have no need of God. That's the natural state that we're born into. I've got it. Common phrase you'll hear this week from someone I'm sure is this. I'm good. That's a prideful sinner who has no need for God. If today was a siren, wake up. Respond to it. Maybe today is a relief. Sinners and saints alike finally understanding what this amazing grace is all about. Sinners say, wow, I'm being chased by a God I can't get away from. Saints are saying, man, I can't stand up under the strain of my own impossible standards that I place on myself and everyone else. And both camps know something. It's not working. You need rescue from someone outside yourself. If that's you this morning, my invitation is to simply receive it. Christ offers salvation in every sense of the word. My invitation to you is this. Place your hope in Christ. If you want to talk with me, I'm going to be around. I'm the one with the big purple shirt on. Uh, come and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to just sit with you if that's what's appropriate. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the gift of the empty tomb. We thank you for the blood-stained cross and what that means to us. We thank you for the context of the story, not just the details and facts to it, but what they mean. Jesus, in the breaking of bread now, would you reveal yourself? As we've read the scriptures, would you show off your glory of who you are? God, for blind eyes and cold hearts today, slow to understand, would you graciously lovingly in your timing peel back the layers so that we would see you. God, for those who are wishing to respond, let it be as simple as a child raising their arms, not even knowing the right words. You know the heart. We're able to pray without saying the right things. But God, we do afresh repent. We turn from being in charge of our life. We raise our arms to simply receive what we could never possibly earn or else it wouldn't be grace. We love you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.